Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. You're very welcome to another episode of the Scaling Your Business podcast. For this episode, delighted to be joined by Leonard Donnelly, the CEO of Waylay. Leonard, you're very welcome to the show. Thank you very much, Rian. Delighted to be here. And I'm delighted to have you. Leonard, typical fashion of the show is we start with early influences, five, six minutes getting to know you, maybe a little less, and then we go into all the good good stuff. So no different with you. Uh, I know you went and studied at both DIT at Trinity and Trinity numerous degrees. I couldn't find out exactly where you grew up. So can you put me out of my misery and then I have a couple of questions based on that? Yeah, a bit of a traveler. So born in Monaghan, uh, lived in, in uh, you know, I think till about uh, seven or eight, I can't remember, in Blackrock outside Dundalk. And uh, then moved to Greystones in County Wicklow. And so that's, uh, Greystones is effectively where, where I grew up. But I did live in Bray for a year and I went to, to Presentation College Bray for, for, my, for my primary era. And uh, yeah, that's, 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 that's a little bit of background. So out of all that travel, other than packing up boxes, have you got any favourite standout memories, maybe hobbies that you enjoyed while growing up? Yeah, no, I was um, a prolific golfer. Um, I would like to think it was very good. My, my mother, who's 87, is still winning golf competitions. So that oh. gives a sense of, of her gifts, maybe not mine. Uh, so I did an awful lot of sailing, and naturally in Greystones, you know, we had a club there all the time, so sailed an awful lot. In fact, one of a few national races, uh, this has gone way, way back, a uh, long time ago. And uh, other hobbies, yeah, I'm, I'm actually, um, you know, when I was young, I was kind of a bit of a strange um, individual in that I collected antique bottles. So I would basically <clears throat> go into places, you know, other people's gardens, you know, and whatnot, without them knowing, you know, and I would know where to find, you know, kind of these sort of... Um, Bottles that would date back to maybe these 1700s, you know, and, and, and obviously wow. further up to Victorian times. And um, so that actually became a little, that was my kind of first entree into trading, you know, because <clears throat> I began to realize that there was an interest in these bottles commercially, you know, and it also was quite catalytic. And as, and as much as my friends saw that I was earning money, you know, by, by you know, selling these in markets, and, uh, you know, they would uh, be quite enthusiastically you now. <clears throat> going bottle digging uh, and earning a few quid as, as well so that was my probably my first uh, hobby that became a sort of a business interest well you, you mentioned bottle digging and nothing like that but my granddad has a boat that he hasn't it's the bottom of his garden in Kilkenny he hasn't taken it out in like 25 years and one day I took off the cover I went inside it and he said the last time he took it out was 1987 and there was coke bottles from 1987 inside of it that hadn't seen the light of the day since which was wow. strange to see coke bottles older than me because i'm 90 93 um you mentioned your mother uh, i don't want to put an answer in your head i'm just bringing this up because you mentioned her but uh, i like to ask guests around the topic of impact and influence mm. what i mean by that is that if you track like dial back the years maybe you know when you were a teenager people can usually pinpoint a small handful of people acquaintances, close friends, teachers, parents who had a massive impact on who they turned out to be today. Yeah. Does anyone, two or three people spring to mind for you? And if so, who are they? 
Yeah, my grandmother uh, on my mother's side first. Um, and that's not to say there's anything wrong with, you, with my other grandmother, just didn't really uh, have as much contact. Mm. Um, my mother would have been, she's a very forceful individual and she's a very fair-minded individual. And so kind of equality and a parity of esteem you know, would have been something that I would have picked up. Um, um, my father's a very, uh, well, he, he's, he's long past, you know, but um, I guess uh, he, you know, not only a very creative person, you know, but also a very numerate person, you know, so therefore I, I must have carried something you know, through for my father, you know, and quite an astute individual, you know, as well. So I guess those three people come to mind. Uh, I think a history teacher in school, you know, like history was a huge passion of mine. Uh, and I think, yeah, you know, it, I think I learned from, you know, being, you know, um, incredibly motivated around a subject you know, that I had a deep interest in. You know, then, then I began to understand the value of teaching and what the difference was between good and bad teaching. And then I'd like to think in the way that I communicate <clears throat> with, with people, you know, that, um, that I'd like to think I'm an engaging person, that it's interesting to, you know, the, you know, the, the way that I can build a relationship with another human being, um, the way that I can make whatever uh, we're talking about kind of topical, uh, relevant, you know, using good metaphors, you know, to kind of explain complex things. And so, but I think that I can channel all that back to, uh, to maybe this, this very interesting history teacher. Wow. Well, shout out to your history teacher, your grandmother, both yeah. your parents, and also your son, Adam, or Callum, sorry, oh, yes. as, as well. Yeah. Um, I'd like and to rewind. The, Go on. And my other sons, Eric and... and uh, yeah, and, yeah. So I just referenced Callum because he was one of the guys that got this conversation flowing, but I'm not going to diss any of your other sons or daughters either. Um, I'd like to rewind the clock to 1992 from your time at Four Systems. You spent seven years there. If you see my eyes moving to the right, I'm reading some of the screen. Uh, during your time there, the company grew rapidly. You, uh, the company was awarded the 1998 Irish Software Industry Award, mm -hmm. and you held a number of, let's say, key positions. Mm -hmm. Towards the latter part of your time there, um, what's, and this is probably asking you to rewind the clock just like you did a minute or two ago, what's one or two things that you felt that you did right that contributed to the success and eventual sale of that company? Okay. Um, well, the company name was actually Euristics, but and Euristics was acquired uh, by Four Systems. So, gotcha. so it was a, a the a little bit of context. You, you know, when I was doing my Trinity Management Science um, degree, uh, we had a final year dissertation, which is probably the most important thing you know, in that in mm -hmm. that study. Um, and I, I, I got a first class honors, which was uh, which is great. Uh, and I, I kind of often wondered why, you know, because, you know, you, you know, uh, everybody has a value when they produce, you know, new research. But I think the reason that I did so well on that was <clears throat> I looked at the Irish uh, software industry and, uh, you know, we had a, in the 80s, there was a pattern that, a, you know, a company and some of the more prominent ones would grow to about 100 people and then they'd fall over, they'd fail and fail <clears throat> very fast. So I, I came up with the theory that the personality of the CEO it will fundamentally, you know, if you can actually understand them and even psychometrically understand the human being that is running um, uh, a knowledge intensive company, that uh, you can <clears throat> understand the way that they're going to behave and you can actually predict um, whether they're going to uh, structure the company proactively in an aggressive way. 
and, uh, and, that, and you can trace these things back to the nature of the person. So I did that study and I came up with a predictive um, a, a model for, for business failure success or somewhere in the middle. And uh, it was very, very accurate. So the, the three things that were, 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 were you know, going to be winners based on the personality of the CEO transpired to be. They're all, all, all thought very, very well. The failures were very easy to predict. There were some spectacular ones, enormous amounts of money, even for the 1980s. And then there were lots of them in the middle. Um, and uh, so that was my grounding, <clears throat> you know, to get interested in the, um, in, the, in the software industry. So one of the personalities that I, that I, I met in that, I think I interviewed uh, 24 CEOs you know, over about a six and a half hour period, you know, all recorded on old, wow. you know, old tape machines and, and, and whatnot. Um, uh, yeah, he was a very interesting character, uh, was a CEO of a, a company that should have been incredibly successful. Uh, and, and the one thing you learn actually very early on <clears throat> when you look a little bit beyond that, you know, is that the, co the company governance, you know, from the role of founders and chairs and, and personalities in companies can either make a company functioning or dysfunctioning. You know? So I think mm -hmm. he experienced a dysfunctioning reality. Uh, and, uh, you know, so, <clears throat> so he had started a small consulting company uh, in the area of telecoms, because that was the background of, of, the, of the two founders. Um, and I just by happenstance took an interest in, in, in the company and was curious to see, did they want to be a, a software development company? Did they want to be a product development company? And so, so had that engagement, I think I did five interviews for the job. And the reason actually, I think had more to do with the fact that they had no money uh, and uh, <laughs> they couldn't afford, it. Couldn't afford a salary. Um, but it, the long and the short of it is it was good actually, because it, it, I had, I kind of pre-baked, you know, it was a very, very small consulting thing. Um, so I kind of pre-baked what it is I was going to do. It's been very, very thoroughly. So uh, one key, key decision we made, um, and, and maybe, you know, being young and being a student in the States, I kind of looked at Europe and I said, oh my God, it's a, it's a kill zone for us. We, you know, it'll, it'll, it will never really be a successful software company selling to Europe, Europe at the time, because in telecoms, deregulation hadn't occurred. You know, you, you, you had big public monolithic, you know, entities. So Telecom Iron would be in BT or, you know, France Telecom, et cetera, et cetera. So what, what we did is, um, and what I did is basically got on the plane you know, uh, on my own initially, uh, with a little bit of support you know, from the, uh, the CTO you know, and maybe an engineer or two. But uh, pr pretty quickly, uh, we started winning accounts you know, based on the premise that uh, the, uh, the big you know, tel telecom companies had been broken up in the States. That kind of ushered in um, the age of the internet. It ushered in an awful lot of innovation. So you had this miraculous kind of explosion of new companies that were building, you know, uh, telecommunication networks in a new way. Um, and then from a software perspective, they had big, big gaps, both in signaling systems, particularly when they were looking at Europe. And then also they had never, never even thought, okay, we've built all these sophisticated pieces of, of equipment. How do we actually manage them? So Quite a long story short, you know, we did incredibly well uh, picking up those uh, deals very, very fast. I remember coming home once with a PO for $1.5 million. Uh, there was kind of just astonishment. And this is in the early days of the company. 
uh, and 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 then then you know deals started coming sort of hot and fast after that. We were uh, operating in a little farm in a farm oh, and above a pharmacy in Stillorgan, uh, and. Uh, uh, we just we eventually kind of exhausted that building, <clears throat> and then we moved to you know bought bought a building in Dunleary, and uh, and and then all of a sudden you know before we knew it we had become in Irish terms you know, a very big company, and I mean we we really done incredibly well not only just in North America we were now acquiring customers you know, kind of in Europe and in, in other parts of the world. Um, uh, but you know at that at that point you know, I think that our timing was good. Uh, we had great strategic interest in the company, and so it was either going to be Four Systems, the company that bought bought, the, bought bought us, or it was going to be Telabs or Marconi or a few other people. And we kind of I knew that anyway because I'm, I'm kind of incredibly close to the, to the to the customers, particularly on the on the product side, which was Raceman, uh, and and we knew that it had high value in the way that the telecoms market was beginning to kind of bubble, if you like, you know. Uh, and, and, and naturally, it, you know, it, it, it actually happened. Well, um, you, you mentioned your dissertation at the very start when you started talking there and how you had talked about when companies reach the cap of about 100 people, something just seems to go wrong. I heard uh, the CEO of Gong.io, Amit, I can't remember his second name, he said that he found, because he's built a few companies to like the four 500 number, and he says when it gets to about 120 to 150 people, the communication line seems to break and it's an entirely different problem you've got to solve then. But that's not my question. My question is, taking your thesis or dissertation aside, you've been an advisor and investor in some companies along the way throughout your career. And something that I've mentioned on this podcast before is a book. Unfortunately, I can't read it right now, but it's around these blind spots that uh otherwise healthy businesses can fall victim to things like uh, improperly onboarding people, not creating a culture of accountability, failing to tie corporate goals to personal goals. You get the picture, not focusing on lead generation. So when you look at the uh, startup world or like medium sized companies, I know that's two different size companies. When you look at that world in 2021, are there common blind spots that you see reoccurring again and again and again, that if the company kind of got themselves together and and overcame that their revenue could be double triple quadruple what it currently is mm-hmm. i'll ask you you asked two questions one big question and, and then the tail end of another question which was mm. getting to 100 people the, the key thing to do if you're at that 100 120 people thing to do is what people the, why companies don't actually why some companies find a terrible adjustment is actually because they don't train leaders to actually take on the fact that things are scaling up you have to, and you've you just to kind of break up teams, you have to have more teams, but you have to have leaders, you have to, but those leaders have to be picked carefully and they have to be trained. You have to, so a good company will, will do that you have to, and, 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 a, and a company that will struggle you have to, will miss that. Uh, and so that's a fundamental reason that certain companies go on and move, grow fast you have to, is because the cap- overall capability you know, has been predicted and 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 adjusted for. You know, so that's that's to, to the first one. Um, yeah, the, the second question uh, is a really really big one. Um, I'd like to maybe kind of break it down a bit. 
Um, are, are we assuming that most of these companies are, 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 you know, are we talking generically all small companies or are we talking technology? Let's say like Series B tech company onward, Series B, Series C is kind of tech company. Mm. Okay, so from a, so Series B from a funding perspective. Yeah. Okay. Um, well, I, I wouldn't deem them necessarily to be startup. I think there'd be more scale-ups. Is that... Is okay. That, Okay, so um, a lot of companies uh, get defocused, you, uh, you know, so when, when a company gets to that Series B stage uh, and, and they're beginning to scale up, you know, um, this, you know, keeping uh, uh, your core product development activity kind of focused and streamlined around where most of your revenue is going to come from is 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 something it seems really simple but a lot of companies go astray because they've picked up bits and pieces of business or they're finding new things but the problem is that all these new things that they're finding don't necessarily uh, interfere you know and create confusion in relation to what the primary purpose and the primary revenue generating vehicle of the company is uh, that is a very very common problem and again it gets down to the leadership uh, uh, you know, in the company to making sure that you don't get bent off course. Um, uh, I, I, I even, I, I, even with, you know, with, with uh, our great company, Waylay, I mean, this, it's so seductive. I mean, this, there's opportunity everywhere. We can go left and right. We can do, um, you know, we can auto automate absolutely everything in the world. But, but for our stage of development, you know, we, you know they are, it's really important that we stay, stay focused around the core things you know, that we need to consolidate and win. And then you, you, then you broaden out and you win more. You know, and then you know, we're in a more controlled um, organizational development phase. So, so that, I, think, I think the underlying um, thing in every company is that. I think um, marketing is absolutely everything. Um, so there's either there are companies that are, 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 are marketed in a very poor way. There are companies that um, that, that have the, the people in, in in a people in a small enterprise or smallish enterprise should actually be very free and creative and asymmetrical in relation to how they actually promote their business. Um, the reason for that is actually very very simple because you will always be put in a class of in a sector within a sector a category you know, and you and you'll always be benchmarked off something else. Now, if, you're, if your approach you know, to being small and supposedly having a USP and being innovative, if you, um, if you take the exact same marketing approach you know, that your bigger things that you compete with, you know, adopt, you know, uh, where is the value for, you know, for your company? Uh, where is the differentiation? Where is the personality of the company? Because again, people are not, let's say particularly in software, people are not just buying uh, technology that gets plugged in to go on they, the buyers understand that there's a, the culture of the company and its sincerity in relation to how the customers are going to be supported uh, whether the people are happy at work all these kind of things in a modern way are are, are very very important I'll, I'll pause there because i could just go on and on in different ways no no it's fascinating i'm just thinking when you mentioned the the leadership side of things it's um Interesting that you say that because there's a number of companies out there that do a lot of training, but there's very few to do training for leadership. And I don't know whether that's because the companies themselves just don't invest in the leaders. But I saw an, uh, uh, I've heard a number of people say that one of the 
worst things you can do is to promote the best individual contributor to a leadership role just because they're the best individual contributor does not necessarily mean that they're going to be the best leader. I'm yeah. assuming based on what you've said over the last five minutes that you're in agreement with that. Yeah, absolutely. 100%. Um, and also you find that the best individual contributors um, tend to be that way because they're, 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 their world is decluttered. Um, because they, they're not carrying all this responsibility from running teams, which is not necessarily core to their DNA. Uh, and that's, that's a very, very common mistake. It's a very common mistake. Uh, a lot of companies that are growing fast, sometimes you have to make that mistake, you know, in places, because you're going so fast, you've got no choice. But you need to be very, very conscious of the fact and you need to communicate with that person, in, in, you know, explaining exactly what you're doing, explaining the tactical nature of the change, but explaining that you're going to make the adjustment and they will be able to revert to the type. So, so that's, a, that's, that's, that's kind of probably a better reflection of the real world. You were the CEO of Waylay rather than me attempt the third or sixty second commercial. You'll do a much better job. So Leonard, the mic is yours. <laughs> so I, I think I'm, I'm still the CEO of Waylay. I think you said I was, but that's, that's, uh, that's, that's neither here nor there. No, it's fine. Um, yeah, I mean, let me give you an example, okay? And it's very interesting from a startup point of view. Um, and, and again, I'm sorry for, for the audience here if I'm concentrating too much on technology, but you have all this money that kind of goes into to companies that are, are either doing something, let's imagine it, in the IoT space, and very, very relevant to climate change and all the innovation that's going to come next. And... Uh, or let's imagine companies that are doing things in a SaaS business model where they have to work with different data types. Uh, all these, uh, you know, I know this as an, as an investor as well, uh, founders of companies like this tend to uh, constantly keep building uh, software in the middle of their enterprise that, you know, they, they, they should never write in the first place. So they're not concentrating on where they add value. So what, what's innovative about Waylay as a company is we um, automate the different, uh, you could call it the operations technology world with the IT world or the AI world with the operations technology world or the data world, data to data world. You know, uh, we've got different systems. And what we've done is uh, built Houston, um, which probably is, it is definitely the most sophisticated automation engine on the planet. Um, and what we do for small companies, Houston, we have an accelerate program say, we just say, guys, you know, even my son would be, would, would agree with me on this one, Houston, uh, looking back in his own first startup, you know, don't invent software, Houston, that you can actually, you can buy a much more sophisticated solution to, which just slips into your world. You don't have to change anything. Mm -hmm. And, and, and you get the opportunities to, to, to add value, um, you know, uh, uh, around, particularly around, let's say, on water leak, you know, so if you had a, an IoT use case, you've already built a very interesting flow meter or water leakage kind of detection system, you know, focus all the effort on the customer side, the AI, the algorithms that you need to build, rather than doing the automation, which is at the Ferrari end. You know, because you have to build a Ferrari and, and uh, engine to do anything at scale. So at the upper end of what we do, I mean, we have huge customers. Uh, the biggest um, oil and gas um, uh, 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 energy company in the world is, is one of our customers. You know, so they would have thousands of 
of different products and systems in the field. And in that scenario, they they would be a company that a bit like a startup, they tried to build all this kind of very clever automation software mm -hmm. themselves. Then they kind of gave up on that and then um, you know went to Azure and AWS and even Alibaba in China and said, can you guys figure out how to do this thing in the middle? Uh, and, and they all failed. You know, been, uh, we're a company that has you know, been very astute in that we've understood how you need to build that automation engine to make everything work. Because what, what, what you're doing is you're automating millions and millions of assets in the field in real time. You know, everything is done on a time series database, database basis, mm -hmm. you know, so that, you know, to do that, it actually means you are building a Ferrari engine. <clears throat> and so therefore, if you're in the oil and gas industry, why are you building engines? You know, it's a bit like um, a bit like Boeing. Boeing doesn't build engines. You know, it goes to Pratt & Whitney and Rolls-Royce. You know, so so we're, that's, you know, so in the automation industry, we're, we're the, um, the Rolls-Royce or the Ferrari. You know, uh, approach. We've slimmed our product down for the small startup scenarios, and then we also for huge scale companies. Um, you know, we, we do that as well. Uh, um, we just landed a massive US uh, uh, in industrial. I can, just I can only class them as an industrial company, uh, but again, the same principles apply. The same experience of that other customer in the oil and gas industry, where they've tried to do it all themselves, they just get to a point of total exhaustion because it's really tough. Uh, and we've been at it a long time. So company's still small, um, but it's uh, it's uh, it's kind of prospects for growth are, are are pretty spectacular. I'll leave links to the company website down below, whether you're listening or watching this, and also to your LinkedIn account as well. And I'll mention that again before we wrap up. But a couple more questions before we do wrap up. Um, is there a tool that you, uh, as a CEO, can't live without? tool mm -hmm. um I'm, 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 I'm pondering on this because i use so many different tools i'm just trying to think of the one that i'm crm uh, tool maybe slack as a communication to communicate with your team zoom yeah. for meetings that's just a kind of a basic level version yeah. probably zoom i mean i would i i i, I I use everything. I mean, I don't just use <laughs> I use Microsoft Teams. I use Google Meet. You name it. You know, Zoom included. Um, realistically, you know, I think that we'll never go back to the way that we, you know we we have been. Um, even though I'm kind of back traveling to Ghent and things like that, you know, I think when I look at the amount of travel that I've that I've done in my life, you know, I think that you know, for example, in 2018, I did 20 trips to San Francisco. And, the, and then oh. trips to China on top of that, and then a few local trips in Europe, you know? So that's just insane, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. uh, you know, so that is never going to be repeated. It's not, not necessary. Uh, so therefore, you know, this form of communication is, 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 has worked brilliantly uh, through the pandemic. Um, the other thing that I think is important as well, and, and it goes back to a little bit of moral responsibility in relation to your carbon footprint, is is been building dependable teams in the regions. So, you know, for example, we've we've hired um, really experienced people in the US, you know, and, and so therefore, like, I want to build dependable teams. We we, we don't have to have you know uh, our co-founder and CTO on a constantly on a flight you know, to Japan or or Europe or, or China, uh, and the same for me. You know, and so what I want to build is dependability into the organization. So therefore. 
you know, every single thing that we do as a company is, is, is actually has been transformed. Well, it always was, it was always using Skype, but I think just in a, in an orchestrated way, I think that's, that's important. Uh, fundraising with investors, it's been the best thing ever because, you know, I think I'm talking about 100 and diff 150 VCs around the world at the moment, and uh, like if you were to do that on the basis of doing it the traditional way, you would just and kind of constantly kind of traveling, meeting people, you wouldn't be able to you wouldn't be able to cover that amount of interesting people to kind of see can you build a relationship with. Mm. So that's that's a big game. The secondary one would probably would be Slack. I think it's it's an incredibly useful tool. It's uh, it's just on that borderline as well from being not being too invasive. So I I, I for example I dislike using um, uh, things like, I, I use things like WhatsApp, but more in a family private context. Gotcha. I, I dislike the idea that I would, you know, open up that world into, into commercial life, but I find Slack, it doesn't really matter whether it's internal or with, you know, with external uh, customers and partners and investors, you know, I find that, find that great. Two more questions for you. Second last one is, have you, and this is putting you on the spot here, <laughs> have you got a personal definition of what success means to you? Uh, being happy. I, 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 you know, I, I think even the, you know, I'm, I'm a little bit older than the average tech entrepreneur in, 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 in a, you know, in today's world. But um, I don't know. I think, I think the being happy thing is a passion. And so therefore, I only would do this job in Wale um, because I actually love and believe you know, what we're doing. And that sounds a little bit cliched, but it's actually true, you know, because I find what we're doing fascinating. And so if I'm not fascinated as an individual, you know, um, I, I like I'm not happy. And so therefore, that, I, I think you're at the context of your question was in the in a work context. Mm -hmm. um, so. You know, I don't think I'm also ever the type of person that could possibly retire. You know what I mean? Uh, you know, I mean, I, I, I kind of, I'm kind of a curious character. Maybe it goes back to the, to the, to the bottle digging. You know, but um, I, I, where I live, uh, I kind of am inclined to kind of build walls. Um, I'll, I'll, anyway, I can You would need to understand where I live. Um, but I, I, I'm, I'm kind of most people just wouldn't do the things that I do, uh, and so therefore. Um, I'm kind of on a personal level. I've got this interesting life, you know what I mean. Mm -hmm. And then at a work uh, level, um, I think I'm just intrinsically interested in things that absolutely I find fascinating. Uh, I I'm very very competitive, you know, so winning is everything. Losing is very painful, and I don't worry. I've had some losses too. Um, anyway, so I'll stop there. There, there, you know, to, to answer your question. So the final question to wrap this up, Leonard, is if you were the decision maker in adding a new mandatory subject to the secondary school curriculum, what would it be and why? Uh, this question I wish I had actually prepared for a little bit better. Uh, so a mandatory subject. Um, well, I mean, I think the obvious one is, you know, computer science, but I think it's, I think I... I would say it the wrong way. Look, everything that we do is low and code, low and no mm -hmm. code based. Okay, so I think so many people in the educational system have been disenfranchised. You know, from, um, you know, you know that they have to have great math skills. You know, from, you know to you know to actually to find a route you know, to doing something in computer science. Everything about Waylay as a company, which I'm very proud of, is the exact opposite. 
we're we're not debunking science here, but we're de democratizing you know the um, the whole problem domain of actually building applications. So what we do is to give you an analogy. My mother, as I mentioned earlier, is eighty seven. She mm. can with Waylay design, um, build, operate, and maintain a nuclear power plant technically based on the tools that we give people. So imagine this, with us, you take delivery of, an, of a Ferrari engine, you, you drop it into your domain, and you've only, you've only got 5% of the, uh, the, the work to actually complete something. So if, if you take some of the really sophisticated oil and gas installations I talk, talked about, if they write 200 lines of code with our solution, that's really, really unusual. So, you know, you're talking about, you know, systems that in the, in traditionally you might have had millions of lines of code. That era's gone, but the, it, the, it's just simple, right? It's, it's a drag and drop world. Okay, so what's important about that? And maybe creativity is the other thing that should be made mandatory in the educational system. It's not encouraged. But now, because the world is these low and low code drag and drop tools, okay, what you're looking for is the curious human being and actually how they think about problem solving and actually how they can take their domain knowledge that has been either relevant as a teenager because they've become fixated on something, and then give them the tools to actually go build something. Or you could have somebody who's 30, 40 years and has built up deep knowledge on something it could be a CNC milling machine or something like that. And what you're doing is you're now changing the world because you're allowing these people to actually build things based on what they know. That's massive in, in mm. terms of change. So I'm not saying computer science, I would say take a leapfrog. And we're doing this with the universities and, and some of the schools in Europe where we're actually, um, they're actually putting on their curriculum low and no code um, uh, 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 software building projects where the kids don't actually have to have um, uh, high IQ for, for maths, but what they do have to have is curiosity, imagination, and creativity. That's an interesting answer. Leonard, we're going to leave it there. Uh, appreciate your time today. It's been fascinating spending the last 30 minutes with you. Uh, as, as mentioned before, I'll leave links to company website and your LinkedIn page uh, below where people are listening or watching to this. But for today, thanks again for being my guest, Leonard. No problem. Real pleasure, Brian. Take care. If your metro don't trust you, I'm gonna show you. Beautiful morning, get a sign of my morning.